So Luke 3, starting at verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors come, uh, came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and will gather up the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. The second reading is Luke 7, verse 18 to 35. John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces but what did you go out to see a prophet yes I tell you and more than a prophet this is the one whom it is about whom it is written I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you I tell you among those born of women there is no one greater than John yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, 
Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Hey, nice to see you. I'm Johnny, I'm one of the pastors here at the gate. Um, and, and well, that was the 2002 Winter Olympic Games speed skating final. I remember it quite well, um, actually. Stephen Bradbury, this Australian speed skater, got a lucky break to get into the Olympic final, but his luck continued when in the final, as we just watched, his far superior opponent, Victor Ann, proved something of a stumbling block, taking out every skater apart from Bradbury, who was so far behind the pack that he just cruised past taking the greatest prize in the sport, the Olympic gold medal. And Jesus' key message, if you've got that, the Bible passage open in front of you, Luke 7, Jesus' key message to John the Baptist and to us this morning is down there in verse 23, which I'm pretty sure must be Stephen Bradbury's favorite Bible verse. Jesus says, and this is key, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is saying something here that might surprise us. There's more to the Stephen Bradbury thing than just that, by the way. I haven't shown that one and a half minutes just for that little link. But Jesus is saying he is a stumbling block that people fall over. That's surprising. The word stumble there could be translated in a few ways. Um, It could be, um, is this working? Takes a while, there we go. Um, It could be translated kind of, blessed is anyone who is not offended by me. It could also be translated as there, blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. And we've seen um, so far that the Pharisees um, in in the book of Luke are the stumblers. Time and time again, they're offended and they reject Jesus. And we'll see them again in today's uh, passage. But even for those who Jesus describes here as blessed, those who do not stumble over Jesus and reject him, we call them Christians, um, it's, it's not as if they walk hand in hand with the Lord throughout their lives without any tensions or questions or doubts. Just as, as Bradbury kind of turned that final corner and made sure he avoided the hazards in front of him, well, so too are all Christians at risk of stumbling. Whether it's due to discouragement or or doubt, Jesus' words here are an encouragement that these these experiences are normal. And this, I think, motivates us to persevere with him. And so today we're going to see John the Baptist having those same wobbles and doubts that we all experience. And my uh, prayer, really, is that we'll hear how Jesus ensures how he doesn't fall. And as we do, I think it would be good just to have this question in the back of your mind. Where, where am I at risk of stumbling? Where am I at risk of falling away from Jesus? What, what, what discouragements or doubts may prove too much for me to persevere? As I say, it's my prayer this morning that seeing some of these experiences in someone like John the Baptist will encourage our souls to continue with Jesus, either now when things are hard or one day in the future when no doubt they will be. So let's look at each of those in turn, John the Baptist and the Pharisees. First of all, let's look at John the Baptist. Now, we had Rosie read chapter 3 because it really ex- exemplifies, really, the, the, what, what's going on in this situation. So initially, John the Baptist came, and he was preaching about God's judgment on sins and the need to repent 
of our sins. And he was passionate, wasn't he? He was excited about God's coming king who'd established his victorious kingdom. But then what happened? What happened after he started preaching that message? Well, we read at the end of chapter 3 that John's zeal landed him in prison for rebuking King Herod for marrying his own sister-in-law. So fast forward to our passage today in Luke 7, and John is still in prison. He's still there. At first, he was there in the cell. He was still confident in Jesus. Yeah, you know, come, I still repent, and I'm still, this is still right. This is still God's kingdom. He's, it, but now, after, after months and months and months, maybe even years by this point, of being in prison, his passion and his confidence have all but disappeared. Was this victory? Was being bolted to a wall and fed scraps through bars really the coming of God's kingdom? So John is discouraged that God's kingdom hadn't actually come. He's thinking, have I just got the wrong end of the stick about this Jesus? It's pretty embarrassing having, you know, preached the way he did to be like, actually, it wasn't, wasn't true. So verse 18, have a look. John calls some of his followers to him in prison, and he sends them to Jesus with this question. He says, verse 19, are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? It's quite the turnaround, isn't it? But can't you relate to John's discouragement? Perhaps you're a new Christian and at first you were on fire for him. You were telling other people all about his love and all about his forgiveness. You were excited to have God as your father. But you know what? In the years intervening, none of your friends listened. Perhaps you've endured real suffering in one area of your life or the other. And now you doubt whether God actually is your father. Or maybe you were part of, of this small group here who started the Gate Church eight and a half years ago. And you had, that, you had that passion and vision for what God might do in this area. And eight years on, well, it all just feels mundane. Church life might feel difficult. And the situation at home hardly helps. You know, is this what it looks like for God's kingdom to come? Do you care or did you care more about God's kingdom than he does? Or it could be that you once felt called to a particular job or a particular house or, or ministry here in Birmingham or, or marriage or whatever it might be. And you, your initial excitement for what God was doing in your life actually now, on reflection, seems to have just led you up the garden path. The landlord wants you out. Making friends in Birmingham has proven near impossible. Your, your marriage is proving hard. Was God really in that or did you get the wrong end of the stick? So this is what John's experiencing about Jesus in prison. He's discouraged. But you know what? He's also plagued by doubt. John is doubtful over the character of Jesus. He's doubtful over the character of God. And you see, whenever we're discouraged in the faith, we start to question if God is who we thought he was. Did you see why John sent the question to Jesus? See his rationale? It's a weird one. Verse 18. He'd been told about these things. What things had he been told about that made him doubt? He'd been told about the miracles of compassion and raising the son of Nain that we saw last week from the dead. Now, why does 
Jesus' compassion on the sick and willingness to raise from the dead make John doubt that this Jesus is the coming king? Well, I think it was because John had a lopsided view of God's king. He had a lopsided view of what Jesus would be like. See, John preached a perfectly true message emphasizing God's judgment on unrepentant sins. And this is absolutely right. Jesus did too. But John's view of God's king stopped there. It was like John had read the the Old Testament prophets about what the Messiah would be like. And due to his own fiery character, he latched onto the bits about the Messiah's judgment and skipped over the promises of his love, of his healing, of his generosity, self-sacrifice, and compassion. And here, Jesus' kind and skillful response both reassures John's doubts, but also gently realigns his imbalanced view of what God's king would be like. John's messengers ask Jesus if he really is the promised one, and Jesus responds in verse 22. Have a look. It won't be immediately obvious to start with, but Jesus says this, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You're like, that didn't really answer the question. But these are all quotes from the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus about what God's king would be like, what he would do. But Jesus has tactically really interestingly, left out all of Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah's judgment on sin. Not because that isn't true. Jesus is perfectly clear elsewhere that that is true. But because John already knows that side, he's already got that side of God's character down to a T. So Jesus is assuring John in his doubt by saying, yes, I am that king that Isaiah prophesied about. And you can be sure of this because look at how I match Isaiah's description of the Messiah's healings and love and grace towards sinners. Grace which perhaps, John, you're not so au fait with. And we're so much like John, aren't we? We all have a view of what Jesus should be like. And we, and we read our Bible through that lens, skipping over the bits about Christ that don't really kind of fit in our view of what Jesus should be like. And in so doing, we remake God in our own image. And all Christians, Christian organizations, tribes, churches, are prone to having a lopsided view of the beautifully balanced nature of Christ according to its culture, which then passes on to those involved. You know, we might be the opposite to John. We might love talking about Jesus' love and grace and heaven, so we skip over or just avoid what he says about his anger or or the reality of hell. But then those who, like John, are really keen to emphasize God's judgment and the reality of hell, well, they often totally miss, or at least in their lives, don't display the kindness and gentleness and gut-wrenching compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all do this in in, in small ways. And when when the God in our heads is challenged by the God we meet on the pages of Scripture, we wobble and we doubt. Is God who I thought he was? And we're at risk at that point of stumbling, verse 23, on account of Jesus being offended by him and maybe even falling away. Well, isn't it encouraging that Jesus responds to our doubts? (laughs) Kindly, but gently, taking us back to the solid ground of Scripture, 
correct, using Scripture to correct those imbalances. And, and in time, wherever our emphases and our excesses are, by his word, Jesus is gentle to reassure us in our doubt and realign our view of him and of God. But before Jesus' message goes back to John, he, sent, you know, he sends the messages off, we can assume here that John's discouragement and doubt has left him feeling disorientated in his faith. He no longer knows what's right or wrong. He was once so confident. Now he doesn't know which way is up or down. He's feeling, we could say, spiritually dizzy, at risk of stumbling on the ice. And it's here that Jesus delivers his key message to John and to us this morning. Do you have a look at it? Just verse 23, this key message that he wants John to hear. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who doesn't fall away due to my timings in bringing God's victory over sin and suffering. Blessed is anyone who isn't offended by my character, whether that's one side or the other. The word blessed here is singular, which is geek speak really for saying he's addressing John as an individual, not as a like general proverb, blessed is anyone, you know, that kind of like just general kind of thing. He's talking to John, you, John, are blessed. Um, so, so he's addressing John as, as, as an individual, and likewise, he's addressing us this morning. He's, addre- he's addressing you personally this morning. It's singular, you for you. He's saying, in your discouragement, doubt, and disorientation, he's saying, keep going. Don't, don't stumble. And to motivate us in that, in verses 24 to 26, after sending John's messengers back to him, he turns to the crowd and he affirms that this at-risk of stumbling man in prison is a great prophet of God. Morning, Iris. So nice to see you. Indeed, this is the last prophet who was prophesied about in the Old Testament and who was, as Jesus quotes in verse 27, the one who would be sent ahead of Jesus to prepare his way. And look what verse 28 says about this doubting and disoriented man. Verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Isn't that a crazy thing to say about this guy who's just come? He's just like, you know, Jesus upholds him. He upholds the man despite his wobbles. Jesus doesn't see uh, John's doubt as a reason not to uphold his greatness. And amazingly, this morning, the same is true of you, not just because the Greek verb was in the singular, but look at the second half of verse 28. Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God... That means everyone, even the one who wobbles through life with Jesus but who keeps going, is greater than that person I just said is the greatest person ever born. After all, John was the the last prophet before Jesus. So Jesus describes him as one born of woman. But from now on, those who do not stumble over Jesus and continue forwards to his kingdom will be described as born of God's spirit. That's what, that's what he's doing there. And, and this makes us great. It's nothing to do with us. 
But just as, as Stephen Bradbury, that speed skater, if you've just come in, that, this will make no sense to you whatsoever while I'm talking about a speed skater. But just as, as Bradbury kind of avoided the stumbling block, took the gold medal, and has now been named among the greats of speed skating through no merit of his own, so too the discouraged, doubtful, and disoriented follower of Christ who continues with him, avoiding the stumbling block, is called great through no merit of their own, but because Jesus is upholding them the whole way. Isn't that encouraging? I don't know, it's encouraging for me. So that's John. Did I miss one? Yeah, I did. There you go. Next up, the Pharisees. Now, if you've been here throughout the, the series, you'll know the Pharisees. Um, they're the super religious guys at the top of society. They felt spiritually superior to everyone else, not least to the worst of sinners, which at the time were these stealing tax collectors, right? And yet, in verse 29, did you see Luke puts this little thing in brackets? Um, he, he basically says, you know, basically contrary to what you might think, it was actually the tax collectors who didn't stumble over Jesus, evidenced in their baptism by John, but it was the Pharisees who did. And so what's going on there? Why is it that the Pharisees, the super spiritual ones, and many today stumble over and reject Jesus? Why do people reject Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us why using a really easy to understand illustration. (laughs) That was irony. Verse 31, Jesus begins, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. So Jesus is saying people stumble over him at his basic form because they're like fickle and belligerent children. (coughs) Often when I'm getting my three-year-old daughter dressed, she says she wants to wear a dress. So I get out a dress, and she says, no, Daddy, I want to wear trousers. Some people are nodding at me. And then you get the trousers out, and she says, no, Daddy, I want to wear a dress. And the truth is, is she doesn't want either. <laughs> she doesn't want the dress. She doesn't want trousers. The truth is, she doesn't want to get dressed at all. The truth is, she doesn't want to submit to any kind of parental authority over her. That's the truth. And so that's what's going on in the illustration. John the Baptist represents the dirge, and Jesus represents the, 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 the pipe, right? John the Baptist came, and with his emphasis on judgment, he sang a bit of a dirge, a slow song which the Pharisees didn't like. They wanted happy music. But then Jesus came, and without undermining John's, John's message, proclaimed good news about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, so to speak, played the pipe, the happy music that they want, but they didn't dance. They said, now we want the dirge. Like my three-year-old daughter, the truth is they didn't want either. They did not want either. The truth is, is the Pharisees don't like either side of the gospel. They don't want to hear of the coming judgment for their sins, like so many of us don't. But they also don't have the humility, like many of us don't today, to joyfully receive God's free gift of life and forgiveness through Christ. Like my three-year-old daughter, they just don't want to be under the authority of another. And you see, these dynamics are always in play in all of our hearts, but particularly when someone outwardly rejects Jesus. Indeed, these dynamics might be in play in your heart right now. Perhaps you've heard about Jesus' gift of grace countless times, but you're 
you're still unwilling to give your life to him because it would mean no longer being the ruler of, of your, your life. We love being the ruler of our life, what we do with our, our time, our relationships, our body, our money. Or maybe, like John, you have doubts as to whether you want to worship a God who is presented in this particular way in Scripture, in a way that you don't like. Or perhaps you feel particularly passionate about one issue or another, which the Bible seems not to be so hot on, or seems to actually undermine what feels naturally right for you. And you see, in all these cases, the problem, like the Pharisees, isn't a lack of information. It's not a lack of answers. John, Jesus showed John that God's word has the answers when he, when he responded to his doubt. The problem is all of our hearts, which don't trust that God is good. Our hearts don't trust that his word actually brings life. Our hearts don't trust that his ways are always good for us. Our hearts trust the way that we see the world above what God says can be trusted. And so we stumble over Jesus. We are offended by Jesus. We reject and fall away from Jesus in favor of retaining our own views and authority. We're all at risk of this. This isn't like people who reject Jesus, people who... This is is going on in all of our hearts. And of course, we'd never put it like that, would we? We point to our reasons. This is really... We point... Look at first... You see verse 33. John came, you know... John came singing his dirge, Right? Not eating bread, not drinking wine. And the Pharisees say, well, I'm not, like, listen to him. He's crazy. He's got a demon, verse 33. This guy's mad. But then comes Jesus playing the pipe to the tune of free forgiveness of sins. He loves a good party, loves the bread, loves the wine. And they call him a glutton. (laughs) Their reasons don't stack up. Which way do you want it? And you see, often when people reject Jesus for something the Bible says, you ask them what part of the Bible they're talking about, and you find that they've not really engaged with, with what the Bible actually says. They've kind of, unlike, unlike John, they're not really eager for answers from God's Word. They, they've kind of heard it somewhere, or, and it kind of aligns with our way of seeing the world. Or, or sometimes, of course, they've read what they don't like about God in the Bible, but unlike John, again, they can't really entertain the idea that what God says about who He is might bring more joy, more life, more truth than what they have decided must be wrong, must be bad, must be dangerous. And as I say, this isn't just people who've decided against Jesus. This, this lives in all of our hearts. But the good news is that Jesus' happy tune is still playing. His love, his grace, his forgiveness still extends to all of us with that same message of hope. Friend, verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed. Come to me. Don't stumble over me. I'm a king who loves and cares for you deeply. So there it is. John and the Pharisees. Just to bring it full, full circle as, uh, as we finish. So that question I asked at the start. Where are, you at most, where are you most at risk of stumbling? Where are you at most at risk of being offended by or falling away from Jesus? Because wherever that might be in your life, I just want to close with how we might go about navigating that discouragement or doubt. And to do so, I just want to highlight something that you may have noticed as a bit odd throughout this passage. I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but some of you may have noticed that Jesus is both the stumbling block 
and the one who keeps people from falling away. See, isn't that weird? A stumbling block which keeps people from stumbling. And this odd detail is important to help us navigate our discouragement and our doubt, whether that's a real live issue for you now or one day when it probably will be. And it's, it's what I put to you this morning, whether you relate more to John the Baptist or to the Pharisees. Listen to how uh, the Apostle Paul echoes what Jesus says about himself and about the cross on which he died. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That means to all kinds of people. But to those who God has called, Christ crucified, the power and wisdom of God. So Jesus' cross is a stumbling block for some, but the power and wisdom of God to keep us stable on the ice, to keep us from stumbling for others all the way to the finish line. And it's when we look to the cross that we find the stability through those wobbles. To some, a suffering God on the cross just looks pathetic. So they stumble. But to those sufferers who God has called, the cross reveals a God who does not call us to any suffering that he wasn't willing to experience himself for you. To us, therefore, the cross is the power and wisdom of God to uphold us in our suffering. To some, the, 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 the cross was the defeat of Jesus' kingdom. So discouraged, they, 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 they stumble. But to those discouraged souls called by God, the cross reminds us that the way to glory is hard and ends in death before we are raised in victory. To us, therefore, the cross is the precious wisdom of God to uphold us. To some, the cross reveals how ugly God is by pouring his horrible anger out on his son. So they stumble. But to those who struggle through doubt about one side of God's character or the other, the cross is God's perfect and just exhibition of his balanced anger at evil and his perfect love for evildoers. To some, like the Pharisees, assured of their goodness before God, the cross is weak. Be better, they say. And so they stumble. But to those called by God this morning, weighed down by the burden of their sins, without hope, before God, apart from Christ who died for those sins, the cross is the power and wisdom of God. And look at verse 35. Wisdom is proved right by all of her children. That is, brothers and sisters, that in our natural wisdom, this Jesus might look pathetic, weak. His teaching might sound offensive or he doesn't do things the way that we would choose. But true wisdom, the wisdom of God is proven right by the countless billions of those around the world persevering to the end of their faith in Jesus, in this God. Despite many reasons, our hearts are tempted to fall away from him by. That is, if you're a Christian here today persevering in faith, that faith puts on display to the world the truth, the power, and the wisdom of God. Keep looking to the cross, a stumbling block for some, but the power and wisdom of God for others. God has answered our discouragements and doubts at Calvary. As you know, Bradbury, after I think it was, I topped the video, but later he, he, des he described his disbelief. 
It's disbelievable. I mean, it was, it was fairly unbelievable, wasn't it, what happened? But he described his, again, if you just come in, like, ignore this bit. But he, he, he described his disbelief at avoiding the stumbling block and cruising into speed skating greatness, completely undeserving. Well, friends, what did we do to deserve the cross? Nothing. And that's why many stumble. But this stumbling block, this cross has opened the way to the finish line to heaven. And it's just around the corner. In all our discouragements and and doubts, we should fix our eyes on that finish line through which we'll cross into greatness by no merit of our own. We don't look like great Christians now, do we? In fact, some of us might even feel we're completely out of the race. We might even look completely out of the race. What did you say? 10, 15 meters behind. But God's way has always been to lift up those who acknowledge that they do not deserve anything from him, let alone greatness in his kingdom. God's ways have always confounded our own, always challenged our expectations in ways mysterious and sometimes confusing to us. And that is why Jesus' words to us this morning are so important. In your discouragement, doubt, and disorientation, blessed is anyone who does not stumble because of me. Shall I pray? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are not like us. You do things that we don't understand and you are. Your nature is different to what we would expect or in sometimes would choose. And yet, Father, we pray that you would show us how great you are. We pray that you would gently reassure us in our doubts And you would gently realign us in our imbalances and excesses so that we would find the joy and life of you in your fullness as revealed to us in your word. Lord, show us our blind spots. Correct our wrong ways of living and thinking and believing. And that may it all be for your glory and the glory of your son. In his name we pray. Amen.